From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Schulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. It is a lovely Monday morning uh, in Johannesburg and really great to have you with us on the show. And uh, later on, we have, as always, our parliamentary feature talking to Dear South Africa, Rob Hutchinson, uh, about what is going on in Parliament and what you can do to help comment uh, on various bills going through. But our interview for the week is uh, an unusual uh, one, and one which I think is going to be very, very interesting. We've got the editor of Breitbart, uh, Joel Pollack, on. He is going to be talking to us. And if you are uh, a fan at all of American culture wars, then you'll definitely know of him. Uh, but what you might not know is the South African connection, uh, and more importantly, a new book uh, about our country and a fiction one at that that uh, he is releasing. So we're going to be talking to him. Uh, it should be a fascinating uh, discussion, uh, it, uh, as I think always, if you've ever read of anything that Joel has written, he always uh, comes at things incisively, if nothing else. We have on the line with us today the editor of Breitbart, Joel Pollack, uh, and uh, if you at all uh, look at the American political scene, he's someone that you will definitely uh, know, but uh, we're going to be talking to him about something different today, a piece of fiction, I think it's the first one that he's actually ever written, and it has to do with uh, our community right here in Johannesburg, so we definitely had to get him online to talk to us today about it. Joel, thank you for joining us, welcome to Chai FM. Thank you, and it's very nice to be with you. I should just say I'm one of the editors at Breitbart, I'm not the editor-in-chief. I was for a while, and then I moved to a more creative role so I'm the editor at large, and I'm based in California. Our main editor in chief is based in Washington D.C. So his name is Alex Marlowe. He's also a very interesting guy. You might want to follow what he writes on Twitter, and he's got a new book coming out. So he's really an interesting guy. If you want to get a sense of how we view the political scene in the United States, but always, always a pleasure to connect and reconnect with South Africa. Oh, thank you for that uh, clarification, and uh, certainly I'll have a look at him as well after. After the show, that is obviously your American perspective, and you, as you say, reconnecting with South Africa. Uh, can you talk to us about what is what is your connection here, uh, so that people understand? Well, I'm a South African. I was born in Johannesburg in 1977. My parents are also South Africans. They were born and grew up in Johannesburg, and they moved to the United States when I was eight weeks old. They had been planning a move, and then I came along, so they delayed for a while, and. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Both of my siblings were born there. And we are a part of the big extended South African diaspora. I came back to South Africa after college in the United States on a Rotary Fellowship, and I studied at UCT for a year. And then I stayed on to work as a freelance journalist. And then I was hired as Tony Leon's speechwriter. So I did that for several years and really got a sense of South African politics from the inside I was also very active in various activities in the community in Cape Town and really uh, just love South Africa. I have learned an incredible amount from South Africa, both good and bad. And it's somewhere I hope to visit again when this pandemic is behind us. Now, 
not just growing up and, as you say, learning a lot in the political scene, but South Africa has been very important in your your shift, uh, politically speaking. And Breitbart is considered to be on the right of the American spectrum. Uh, but when you came to South Africa, that wasn't necessarily your disposition. And in fact, one of your uh, books, one of which I've enjoyed quite a lot, uh, was a book on, on Ronnie Kastrels, uh, which was uh, fascinating in how the Jewish community uh, works uh, politically. Tell us a little bit about that journey, about how you saw South Africa and, and, and how that affected uh, your perspective on things. When I came to South Africa, I was very much on the left. In fact, in college in the United States, the college Democrats were too centrist for me. I was very much on the on the radical left. I was involved in a number of activities and organizations and activist events that today would be seen as part of the woke progressive left. Back then, it was just really a marginal phenomenon. Now it has taken over the Democratic Party. But I came to South Africa with that in mind. And I was very enthusiastic, not just for the end of apartheid, which was obviously very exciting for everybody, but I was also enthusiastic in particular about what I saw as the ANC government's pioneering policies. The ANC was doing in government what many of us on the left in the United States could only dream that our government would do. And so I came to see how that turned out. And as it turned out, not well. The results were not very good at all. And I arrived in South Africa in the midst of the HIV AIDS debate where Thabo Mbeki was the president at the time, and he was questioning the link between HIV and AIDS. And there was absolute silence within the ANC about it, with the exception of one or two people who later resigned, I think. The party was in lockstep behind its leader, despite the fact that he was spouting dangerous anti-scientific nonsense and it was having a real effect on people in terms of the cost of human life. And that was a warning sign. And I saw a number of other things that also shocked me, such as the effect of over-enthusiastic or overly aggressive affirmative action. I'm not opposed to affirmative action of any kind, but the application of affirmative action and black economic empowerment was really having a negative effect on the people it was supposed to help. It was driving skills out of the country. It was discouraging investment. And it was basically helping a privileged few while the poor were still poor. So... This was an eye-opener for me, especially as I was doing some volunteer work in some of the black areas of Cape Town, like Kailicha and so forth. And it was really a wake-up call for me that many of the ideas I thought would work were corrupted by their reliance on the state. And when you rely too heavily on the central government, you're inevitably going to get the kind of corruption that we've seen. It's not just a South African phenomenon. It happens everywhere. It happens here in the United States. It's basically just the nature of humanity. And I really began to crystallize some of these thoughts after the Israel debate unfolded in South Africa. And you mentioned the book about Ronnie Casrells. Ronnie Casrells is a Jewish member of the Communist Party. He at the time was in South African government, and he tried to pressure other Jews to join him in denouncing Israel. Now, I was still on the left at the time, or thought I was. So I tried to find a kind of middle ground where you could criticize Israel, but also support Israel. And that eventually collapsed because the people who were interested in criticizing Israel really weren't interested in reasoned criticism and finding solutions. They were just interested in demonizing Israel and herding South African Jews into the ANC's orbit. So the end result of that was a disillusionment with politics on my part. And I began to really think about alternatives. And I had seen the results of the policies I thought I believed in. And I asked myself, 
if what I cared about was the policies and the sentiments behind the policies or the results of the policies. And if you look at the results, you really have to agree or arrive at the conclusion eventually that these left-wing ideas don't really work. So I began to move toward the center, and then I worked for the DA in parliament for a while and got a very intense exposure to these debates. And by the time I left South Africa, I still thought I was a Democrat in the American political sense, but very much a liberal in the South African sense, an emphasis on individual liberty, small central government, and so forth. I came back to the United States, and I went to law school and discovered that the Democratic Party had shifted significantly to the left, that there were very few Democrats who believed in those things anymore. We now see the culmination of that trend in the Biden administration, which is staffed partly by old insiders from the Clinton era and also young radicals from the Obama era and the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. He's not a Democrat, but basically the left. And they are enacting many of the same failed ideas that I saw in South Africa, and it's having a detrimental effect on our politics. It's also doomed to fail. None of these ideas will work. So that's the one consolation, I think, for Americans on the right, for, for conservative Americans, is that as we were watching all this happen with a sense of helplessness, because Democrats are behaving as if there is no opposition, there is no need to consult with the other side, even though Biden promised unity and so forth. We're watching all this happen, but the consolation is none of it works. It, it really doesn't. It does not work at all. And it's just a shame we have to sit and wait through this, through whatever suffering it causes along the way. But anyone who studied history and studied other examples like South Africa would understand that some of what the Biden administration is doing is, is simply doomed to fail. So that was the role South Africa played and continues to play in my political development. I often look to South Africa and some of what South Africa did succeeded. I mean, there are things that the United States can and should learn from South Africa, principally the idea of reconciliation as something that is reciprocal. We don't have that right now. We have this Black Lives Matter movement that claims falsely that the United States is a white supremacist country and that to the extent we need racial reconciliation and understanding, it can only come through the dismantling of what they call white privilege. Well, that put, puts white people at the center of the problem, which you might think is right in that maybe they're the source of the problem, but it means that they're the only ones who can solve the problem. So it takes agency away from black people completely and it divides society and causes the problems that the Black Lives Matter movement exists to solve much worse. We could learn from South Africa's example. I know, of course, South Africa hasn't always been true to its own example, but certainly in, in the 90s with Nelson Mandela, F.W. de Klerk and, and the TRC and other sincere efforts at reconciliation, I think there's a lot to learn that we haven't learned. We've learned all the wrong uh, lessons from South Africa. I say we as uh, referring really to the people in power right now. But uh, South Africa stands for the left as a, as a shining example of brilliant left-wing policy, but nobody looks at the results and they fail to learn the lessons. So we're talking about a TRC in this country, or at least the left is talking about it, but they view it as a tool to punish their opponents. They view it as a way to cast the Republicans and the conservatives as a kind of apartheid regime rather than looking at what the TRC was actually about. So there are positive lessons too of South Africa that we often miss. So let's get away from the politics for, for two minutes. I definitely would like to uh, ask you some questions around that. But uh, let's talk about your latest venture. Uh, I think it's the first time you've ever written something fiction. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but you decided from all your very varied experience across America uh, and a little bit of, of your time in South Africa to do something fiction related, uh, not just in South Africa, but in South Africa's past. Uh, and in a very specific part of, of South Africa, which is Jubeir Park in, in central Johannesburg. 
which I thought was an interesting place to to host uh, 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 a set of, of of fiction discussions. So talk to us a little bit about what went into the decision around that. So this is my first attempt at fiction. I don't know if it's a successful attempt. There are parts of the book that I think are are, are very good. I hope I hope overall people enjoy it. But it's been something I've been working on for 20 years in, in the back of my mind. And it's loosely based on my own family's history in South Africa. My father's father was born in Lithuania and came from a little town called Janiškis, which I've actually had the chance to visit in, in recent years. And they came to Johannesburg eventually and began building. They were in the building trade for a while and they built a couple of apartment buildings, blocks of flats in Jubair Park. And there was a falling out within the family. And I've often seen that falling out between my grandfather and his brother as a way of telling the South African story and exploring the moral dilemmas in the South African Jewish community in particular at a time when South African Jews had found refuge in, in South Africa from Eastern Europe, from pogroms, from the Nazi Holocaust and so forth, and yet were confronted at the same time with a new system of oppression, of racial segregation, and had very difficult moral choices to make. And for many South African Jews, the easier thing and maybe even the wiser thing was simply to ignore the politics around them and to make whatever they could out of their lives and hope to make a better life for their children, which which many have done. And others contributed in whatever way that they could to trying to solve the problem. Some people making some very uh, extreme personal sacrifices. That was a minority, but a, a proud minority. And I looked at this fight between brothers as a way to examine the moral obligations that people have to each other, to one another in society. Did South African Jews have a greater moral obligation to help black South Africans. I don't mean a greater moral obligation than other white South Africans. I just mean did a greater moral obligation than was acknowledged at the time. And so I fictionalized the family story to a great extent and also introduced the presence of a, a real political movement, although this is historical fiction, of course. They, my family didn't have any interaction with, with James Mpanza and uh, his political movement, but he was an interesting person. He started a movement called Sofasonke, which means we'll all die together. And it was a movement among black South Africans who'd been thrown out of Johannesburg. Uh, this is in the years leading up to apartheid, but I think uh, well into apartheid, there were slum clearances and forced removals from Sophia Town and Dornfontein and other places. And what he did was essentially he, he built a self-governing society in what is today Orlando West. And he was an interesting character. He was seen by some as a kind of mafia boss because he collected kind of taxation or, or you could say extortion payment from those under his supervision in Sofasonke. But he also provided government services where the government did not. He provided protection where the government did not provide police. He provided a sense of self-government. So it was an interesting movement that was an early model of self-reliance among black South Africans. And it's not one that's familiar to many people, but I thought it was a very interesting way of connecting the two stories because in the book, the two brothers who go into the building industry in Jubair Park encounter 
through another connection, they, they encounter James Mpanza, who in his own way is in a building industry in, in Soweto, who's, who's building his own community. And that connection is one that I explore a little bit in the book as a way of thinking about some of the, the moral dilemmas facing Jewish South Africans in particular at the dawn of apartheid. There, there are some other interesting elements to it as well, which is that while the National Party was campaigning for power across South Africa, there were momentous events happening in the Middle East. There was the War of Independence for Israel and the birth of the State of Israel on May 14th, just shortly before the 1948 elections in South Africa. There's no real connection politically between the two events, except that South African Jews were very worried about the rise of the National Party because it had been so anti-Semitic during the Second World War. There were prominent members of the National Party who had been pro-Nazi and Nazi sympathizers. So there was a lot of concern about it. Uh, but what I, I do uh, in, in the book is not so much explore the questions about any connection between those events, but simply show the level of enthusiasm at the time in the Jewish community for Zionism and for the idea of building. This idea of building is a theme in the book. And in a way, Sofa Sonke in, in Orlando West, although it, it was um, on, on the margins of society, was a model, I think, for building in the same way that the Zionist movement was a model for building within the Jewish community. It was a movement that was self-reliant, that created its own institutions. And in many ways, that's still the way forward, I think, for Africa in general and, and for South Africa in particular. I think uh, the black community in South Africa and, and in the United States could do more to learn from Israel's example and, and from the example that, that Jews lived of, of building institutions and creating opportunities to raise themselves out of poverty and not to rely on the state. So in that sense, James Mpanza is kind of a hero in the book, even though he doesn't play a, a role in, in the fight between the two brothers. But I think it's an interesting way to look at what was going on politically in South Africa and, and the world with a really interesting connection to the, the central moral question in South African history, which is the welfare of black South Africans. We're talking today to Joel Pollack uh, about his new book uh, about uh, South African Jews, South Africa, Johannesburg. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back just after that. From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. And we're talking to Breitbart Senior Editor-at-Large, Joel Pollack, uh, about his new book, Jubair Park, uh, which is uh, a family story and one that uh, also captures some of the big political questions around the second half of um, of the century uh, in South Africa and and in Israel as as well. Uh, Joel, you you've recently released a book. Um, you, people obviously do know you more as a nonfiction writer. What what has been the reception to to what uh, to what you've been writing? Because you you really bring a lot of quite big ideas all into into one space whether you're talking about the jewish position on a uh, you know versus apartheid which has spawned its own small sub uh, publishing industry you know, black history in south africa and anti-struggle history is another one the uh, 
Israel and the Zionist movement, all of these are really big ideas. Uh, so, so how have people reacted to, to them all clashing in one piece of literature? It's been hard to judge the reaction so far because the readership has been rather limited thus far. I find that what really sells books nowadays is outrage. If you're selling outrage, people pay more attention. So books that explain or that really sit with a subject and get into it a little more deeply take a little bit more time to percolate. But I do think that in general, in my writing, people have appreciated the way in which I try to help people see through whatever dilemmas are in the headlines to see past the outrage, basically, because engaging with politics today can be incredibly frustrating. And I've had the advantage of having experiences in South Africa and Israel in the United States that have given me a sense of perspective. And I think I can help people see that what's going on isn't necessarily as daunting and as dangerous as it may seem in the day to day. I think if you look at Israeli politics, American politics, even South African politics, there's a sense of despair that people have about their political systems and about the degree to which these systems may be tearing society apart or making it harder, not easier for society to solve its most pressing problems. We're at a time right now where the world is challenged by, you could call it the Chinese model of authoritarian rule. And the Chinese, who control the flow of information, so it's very difficult to measure the truth of their claims, but the Chinese claim that their model is more successful, that their centralized control of production and policy and ideology and culture is much more efficient and effective than democracy, which is messy, which is combative. And certainly the Chinese have pulled hundreds of millions of their own citizens out of poverty in the last two or three decades. That's largely because they adopted the Western capitalist model of the market economy, ironically. But they're trying to control that economy and direct that economy. And I think it's very attractive to some people, particularly, for example, in South Africa and the ANC, uh, people who don't want to admit that liberalism, that small government, that free markets work. They like the idea of a developmental state or a centralized government. And the, for the same reason, it appeals to Democrats in the United States. We've been hearing for more than a decade now about how China is better at developing infrastructure and we should imitate China. We should make someone dictator for a day so they could make all kinds of changes to our environmental policies and so forth that would normally be resisted. But we need them to stop climate change. And there's this fantasizing on the left in the United States about authoritarian rule for certain purposes, at least. And we're seeing it begin to emerge on social media, where the big tech giants of Silicon Valley are able to shut down dissenting speech where there's a kind of cancel culture emerging. If you have dissident views or you say the wrong thing, you lose your job, you lose your professorship, you lose your newspaper column, whatever it is. So that authoritarianism is actually manifesting itself. And ironically, the left cast itself as the champion of democracy against Trump, whom they falsely cast as a kind of authoritarian leader, but they are the ones actually originating the authoritarianism. And it's, it's, some of them are beginning to realize it. You know, the cancel culture is going so far that some of them are starting to see that they've lost control of what they've created at the very least, that it's, it's attacking uh, themselves. I mean, they're, they're victimizing each other, but they're, they're not able to pull it back in because it, require, it would require them to admit that freedom is actually a better model. They're not prepared to go there yet. And look, looking around, you see the dilemmas that democracy faces and the very uh, divided nature of our societies. 
democracy is having a tough time. And, and it's not because of leaders like Trump. I mean, I think Trump was actually a, a great example of, of what democracy can bring forth when it's needed. Democracy has a tendency to renew itself and to, to bring out leaders that are needed for the, for the time that they're, that they're required, which is, I think, what Trump did for, for America. I think Trump had a profoundly positive influence on the country, on our policies and so forth. Uh, maybe that's a topic for another, another show. But in any case, he's gone. He was, he lost a democratic election and, and that's what democracy allows you to do as well. But we are at a moment of low self-confidence and every political challenge is presented to us as a great crisis. And maybe it is in some ways. There are some very real dangers. I mean, the Democrats now are talking about packing the courts, about expanding the number of judges on the Supreme Court so they can use the courts as a rubber stamp for their policies. I mean, this is real, you know, South Africa. Africa type stuff. I mean, this is the kind of thing we used to worry about with ANC, that they would amend the constitution once they had a two thirds majority and they would uh, stack the constitutional court with ANC cronies and the, the or, or, or the national party for that matter. Yeah. I mean, didn't, didn't the what, national party, I said even the national party tried to pack the court back in yeah, they, exactly. when they tried to get the, the national party. Yeah, that's exactly right. The national, the, the, the national party, that's exactly right. The national party, that's exactly right. The national party did to get to take colored voters off the rolls. They stacked, they, 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 they packed the court. So, um, Democrats are talking about doing that right now as a way to, to get their progressive agenda through. And they argue that it'll be better for everybody in the long run, but it will be completely corrosive and destructive of constitutional democracy. So there are some very real threats. On the other hand, there's something so comical about it because the people who are arguing for this change are, are people who have achieved nothing for their own constituents. I mean, these calls for radical reform are coming from the worst governed places in the country. People, you know, New York City is, is basically a basket case at the moment. I mean, it was it enjoyed a revival for about 20 years after Rudy Giuliani in the early 90s. It was a wonderful place to live and to visit. But now people can't get away from there quickly enough. I mean, the people are, are running away from New York, moving to Florida, moving to Pennsylvania, moving to Connecticut, just getting out of there as fast as they can because of the high taxes, the dysfunctional city services. Socialism, it turns out, has been completely destructive to New York City. We've had a socialist mayor there, uh, Bill de Blasio, for two terms now. You've got a far left wing governor in Andrew Cuomo, who's now facing all kinds of scandals, both personal and political. And and yet the people who represent New York, Jerry Nadler and one or two of his sidekicks are out there saying we need to pack the Supreme Court so we can have more left wing policies in the country. They're just completely undaunted by results. And so you know, some of this is comical. And that's how I think it has to be addressed as almost um, something you can mock and ridicule, because that's actually the most effective way of opposing it. Can I ask you, um, can I ask you something? I mean, you've almost, uh, you know, the, the the discussion that we're having here could very well fit into a let's call it a highly partisanized discussion about American politics and, and economics. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that, um, it, you know, everything in the American discussion right now is highly partisan and, and you come from a, a particular perspective, but it seems to me that that's not what you've tried to do with the fiction book with the fiction. You've almost tried to step away from that a little bit and try and tell say a more nuanced story or from multiple perspectives. Is it a different kind of process? It is a different kind of process. Look, fiction has to work at some level. You, you cannot force a story to be appealing to the reader. It either will be appealing or it won't. In political writing, people often get away with challenges to their ideas by insisting or asserting conclusions. Dogma fills in some of the gaps. You can't do that in fiction writing. In fiction writing, the characters have to seem real and the way they encounter situations has to seem 
authentic. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And one of the things I struggled with in writing this book, I've written several drafts of it. And, and in some of the early drafts, I would say even, um, you know, I, I started work on it when I had more left wing views. And I think the earlier drafts of the book were a little bit more uh, moralistic with regard to what um, particular characters ought to have done. Almost almost preachy in the sense that I, I was almost arguing that South African Jews should have done more and should have uh, been more cognizant of the dilemmas facing black South Africans. I mean, maybe some of that is true, but I think as I rewrote these drafts, I think that softened quite a bit because I don't think it's really possible to make those judgments quite so in quite so glib a fashion about about people and, and the, the constraints they faced in the past. And I think the the lesson really came became much more about self-reliance than it did about the need to help others. I think there is a need to help others, but the most effective way to help another person is to help them help themselves. And that subtle change in my ideas, I think, actually made the story better, made the story hang together better. And I, I don't know if I could have written a successful novel, that is to say, not necessarily commercially successful, but a novel that works as literature. I don't think I could have written it in a didactic way. I do think people write that way. I don't think those books tend to stand the test of time because people don't really like being preached to. I think what's more interesting for a novelist to do is to hold up human situations for us to examine and to study. Now, literary fiction, uh, in some ways, is kind of seen as a preserve of the left. Uh, in in America, there's a huge uh, uh, what budget, uh, publishing uh, industrial complex that you have to engage with if you want to kind of produce a novel. Uh, have you have you engaged with that at all? Or have you just kind of written it and then sort of published it and yeah. and, and run your own network with it? The publishing industry is moving very much to the left. And that's not to say there aren't conservatives who do very well in the book market. There are. But mostly the conservatives who do very well tend to be in the outrage market. They they market their ideas with, with an edge to them that I think is appropriate in some circumstances. It's just not what I do. I don't like making people more agitated. I don't like people making people more argumentative. I can argue. I like to argue. But I, what I try to do is to help people put things in perspective. So in the most argumentative book I've ever written, which was called See No Evil, um, 19 Hard Truths the Left Can't Handle, I didn't just go after the left. I created three different categories of arguments. One was category, one category was where, where I believed conservatives had the definite advantage in the argument, where there was really no way to defend the left-wing position. But there were two other categories. One was where I believe the left had the best argument on certain issues. It's just that the, what was wrong with what the left was doing was that they weren't even willing to have an argument. So even though they had the better arguments on particular issues, they wanted to stifle all dissent. And so they were crowding out any ability to achieve a kind of social consensus about these issues because they just didn't want there to be another point of view, even though they had the better point of view, they were stifling dissent. And then the other category, the third category, um, was issues where it was very difficult to see who had the better argument, whether left or right. But what the left was doing was making sure there wasn't an argument. So in, in every case where the left could actually have something to say, something to help people, they undermine themselves by stifling dissent because there's something about the left that's just completely intolerant of other points of view. Not everybody on the left, but 
we see that more and more on the left, that they just cannot tolerate other points of view. I mean, we see that with debates over race. We see it over uh, COVID-19. You know, I understand that some people aren't qualified to make uh, medical arguments one way or another about masks or vaccines or whatever. But the way that people have simply been censored for saying something, if you talk about allegations of fraud in the last election, and, and there probably was some fraud. And I, I've written a whole book about how the last presidential election in this country was neither free nor fair. And I do believe that. But if you talk about voter fraud specifically, you can be kicked off of social media. There's there's no reason for that. I mean, if, if the arguments are truthful and convincing, then they'll stick around. More people will listen to them. And if the arguments are not, people will stop listening to those people. I mean, one one thing you have to be able to figure out is whether people can predict the future, right? If you have a theory about the past that works, it should be able to predict the future. People who can't explain future outcomes eventually get left behind. I think the marketplace of ideas is the best way to do this, not social media censorship. So the left, unfortunately, cannot resist the temptation to shut down and, and cancel its opponents. That's the most anti-left thing I've written in, ter in terms of a book. Uh, you know, I did go after the left, but I also admitted in parts of the book that there are arguments where the left has better ideas or at least more workable ideas that if they would only allow people to to have come to that conclusion themselves, it would you know it would be fine for them. And and so that's what, what I like to do. I like to frame things in a way that allows people to move on with life because I don't view politics as the purpose of life. I, I view happiness as the person, the purpose of life. There are a lot of other things to do, like, you know, going to the beach and enjoying dinner and making love and what, I mean, whatever else you want to do, you know, politics shouldn't interfere with that. But the left wants politics to rule every aspect of our lives. And so a lot of what I end up doing is pushing back on politics, even though I'm a political writer. So I don't uh, market myself necessarily to the audience that's most likely to pick up a political book. What I do try to do is create something that I think would benefit people years from now, decades from now, when the present political debates are long since behind us, I'd like to create books that people can pick up later and 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 read and and enjoy. Uh, that's that's the spirit in which I approached my most recent print book, which is Red November, which is about the Democratic presidential primary. Now I'm a conservative writing about the Democratic presidential primary, so it's I think it's a great book. I think I had a lot of fun writing it. I think it's a very interesting book. I think it predicted the situation we're in right now where we have a very far left-wing presidency with a president who's a kind of moderate figurehead. But, you know, it, it didn't sell fantastically well, partly because it didn't cater to the outrage mob. I mean, it didn't, it didn't say to conservatives, you're right about everything and here's why you should hate the left. And, you know, the left has its own books that do that. Uh, there is an effort in the publishing industry right now to cancel conservative writers. There are a lot of people who are being uh, shoved aside because the publishing industry is moving to the left. If you have a conservative view, you're less likely to get published. And so ironically, the people who should be most in favor of freedom of speech are becoming the censors, which is really tragic. But there are other things to do. I mean, I publish on Amazon, sometimes on my own, uh, without having to go through a publisher precisely for that reason. I don't want to be censored or I don't want to have to get approval by someone uh, from someone who who may be under duress. And there are other people, I mean, I, I make a living writing at Breitbart, but there are other writers who've been canceled at their various outlets who are now making a living on, on websites like Substack, where they can charge subscriptions and, and people are happy to pay for them to get the content. So I, I think that fortunately there is still a marketplace of ideas, but it's one we have to fight to defend because big tech has an enormous amount of power and they are trying their best to control the conversation. So they're going to try to cancel and destroy uh, any any alternative if it becomes a commercial threat. So this is still very much an ongoing struggle. But but I think there is a market for, for books that help people put things in the right perspective. 
And, you know, we just have to find a, a way or keep finding ways to reach that audience. Uh, and I'd love to delve into some of these issues about the election, about Trump, about uh, the, the Democratic Party, but we've run completely out of time. Uh, but it's been a fantastic interview, Joel. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to get the book, want to uh, learn about, uh, I think, some parts of history of South Africa that I think uh, many people have not heard of, which I think is also fantastic, telling parts of, of South African history, uh, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Well, it's very easy to find me on Amazon. Just type my name in, Joel Pollack. You'll find a whole book page there. And the book is Jubair Park, but you can also follow me on Twitter at Joel Pollock, and I write regularly at Breitbart.com. I usually have a few articles there every day. So if you follow Breitbart.com, you'll also get a good conservative perspective on American politics and politics in the UK and Europe. We have a whole London bureau as well. So that's a good place to find me as well as other excellent writers. Well, there you go. Joel Pollack, uh, editor at large, Breitbart, and recent new fiction uh, writer about uh, about South Africa. Uh, so go have a look. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, you can you can tweet us at the show and, and let us know on Chai FM uh, what you think of Joel's writing. Uh, we are going to take a short break, and we'll be back just after this. <laughs> 